millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Thank you very much for taking a little bit of time out of your day to join us for Tuesday's Irish Times Second Captain's Olympics podcast, Ken. How are you? Good, on, how are you? I'm all right. When a major championship medal is won by an ath- a clean athlete who beats a competitor with a pass record of doping, it's not too surprising to hear fans and media describe it as a victory for clean sport. You know, you hear this quite a lot. Such is the vicious atmosphere surrounding the swimming so far in these games that it's the swimmers themselves who now feel free to make those statements. The women's 100 meter breaststroke was won by Lily King, who beat Yulia Efimova yesterday. This was, uh, uh, we had talked a little bit about Efimova on yesterday's podcast. So King describes it as a victory for clean sport. I showed you I can still compete clean and win. Should people who have been caught for doping issues be on the team? No, they shouldn't. There shouldn't be any bouncing back and forth. I stand by what I said yesterday, but I have to respect the IOC's decision. So she respects the IOC's decision while constant, while rubbishing it consistently and slamming her Russian, um, her Russian competitor who had to sit there in the press conference and listen to this. Well, I think what, she, what you can work out from what she says is that she doesn't have a lot of respect for the IOC. That's what's going on here. UDFMOVA is just a symptom of the problem here. She's not really the cause of it. Um, and I think increasingly the athletes are beginning to identify the governing bodies themselves as the, uh, as the real problem. Here. Uh, it was pretty personal towards FMOVA as well. When King won her semi-final, she put her index finger in the, the air as in I'm number one to deliberately mock FMOVA, who celebrates her races by doing that. And she said so afterwards. She made it pretty clear this is what she was doing. So maybe she is, she is having to go with the IOC, but I think she's taking great pleasure in beating her Russian cheating competitor too. Yeah, but the reason they're, they're, they, they used to, there used to be a bit more decorum about that sort of thing. And in some ways, I think there still should be, actually. I don't, I don't really... You don't like it? Well, I, don't, I just don't think gloating is really a good look. You know what I mean? Oh, here I am. I'm the champion of clean sport and gloating. You know, I just don't think it's sportsmanlike. Maybe my attitude is old-fashioned, but maybe maybe it's old-fashioned because the athletes feel as though, you know, who else is going to do this for me? Mm. I don't have, you know, if if, if the governing bodies are, are going to basically overlook doping and then when it happens, say, 
you know, it doesn't really matter. Come on in anyway. It's all then, then, then it's kind of it's left to me to express my disgust. Uh, it's left, it's left to me to do this myself. You know, have a pop at Efimova. Maybe they, they obviously don't like each other. They don't have any respect for Efimova the way that she's served a couple of bands and is and is back. Um, you know, athletes who don't take drugs. Don't really like that. It rumbled on in the men's pool as well. Well, it's the same pool, but in the men's events. Sun Yang, our Chinese pal, he won gold in the 200 metres freestyle. And in the meantime, Australia has flatly rejected calls for their swimmer, Mac Horton, to apologise about calling Sun Yang a cheat earlier on in the competition. So does all that. Michael Phelps was asked about everything. He says, I think it's sad that we have people in sports today who are testing positive, not only once but twice, and still having the opportunity to swim at these games. I guess that was in reference to... FMOVA. Although the Russians seem to feel that not all is right with Michael Phelps, Ken. They're going big fish hunting. <laughs> yeah, the Russians have uh, have pointed out that uh, Michael Phelps is covered in these weird sort of hickeys. He's got these circular hickeys all over his body. What is going on? Uh, and he's doing some kind of cup, you know, some faddish, you know, nonsense. So, yeah, cu- sort of a cup massage therapy that supposedly increases your blood flow. And, all kind and of as the, yeah, it increases circulation and feelings of well-being. So in many respects, is uh, quite similar to meldonium. Uh, That's what Russian state TV said, was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, people are taking meldonium to, to improve blood flow and well-being. So if this is what you're, if you're doing this to improve those very things, or at least the subjective feeling of that, then really, what's the difference? Uh, yeah, yeah. I will. Well, they've got a point in, in one respect, uh, in that, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing illegal about what Michael Phelps has been doing. This is why he's, he's not doing it. He's doing it because he thinks there's a benefit to doing it. Uh, similarly... Uh, when you know all of these Russian athletes, and not just Russian athletes, were taking meldonium, there was nothing illegal about doing it. They were taking it because they knew there was a benefit to taking it. <laughs> Maybe the, their approach is just a little bit more scientific and a bit less superstitious. But was it ethically any different, really? I mean, this is the question. This is the difficult thing. You know, uh, when they were when they were taking meldonium, it wasn't it wasn't illegal to do so. Mm. I mean, a lot of them. The problems they had is they kept taking it when it after it had become illegal, but it was still the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a pretty heavy duty medication to be taking, though, as opposed to just getting a f- massage with some cups. Heavy duty medication, but it's it's hard to know where to draw the the line. The, the line is the line is not it's not immediately obvious not immediately obvious where it should be. I mean, if it's if it was illegal heavy duty medication, then. What's the problem? The big issue that uh, seems to be attached to this cupping therapy is that every article I read about it explains what it is and then says there are a lot of doubts raised as to whether or not this actually does have any benefits. (laughs) I'd love to know the mechanism by which it's supposed to operate because I don't see necessarily how how it does work. I I mean, none of the we haven't even mentioned the most um, impressive swimmer so far. Um, Katie Ledecky? No. Uh, Katinka Hosu, she she's been, oh, yeah, yeah. she's been dominating it. Mm. She's been killing everybody, and I find her pretty incredible. Uh, I mean, looking at her history, uh, she really is quite a late developer for a top class swimmer. I mean, really kind of started dominating uh, the events uh, in her mid twenties, right? Which is just. An unusual career trajectory for uh, for a female swimmer. 
you know, in, it's it's a sport in which, you know, a lot of the top competitors, you know, the, you can be a top competitor age 15, 16. You know what I mean? A little bit older maybe is, is your prime, but you would have thought that. Now, okay, so what age are, is she now? What age is she now? She's 27. And she started getting particularly good? Three, four years ago. Right. Um, you know, her, her, uh, her previous Olympic performances... Uh, I mean, the 2012 performance, she didn't really, you know, she didn't pull up any trees, you know, but she's obviously changed her training regime. Um, she's got a lot stronger, a lot faster, which is great to see in an athlete at this at this age that those improvements are still possible, not just marginal gains, substantial gains. <laughs> uh, and uh, and she's really and, and nobody has taken her on. Uh, but of course, there's no. There's no reason to suspect anything, and and in fact, she's got a history of litigation against ah. like, against people who have have said that. So um, now that poor old Efimova uh, <laughs> has been stomped on, I wonder I wonder who's next uh, to bear the brunt of the righteous uh, indignation of the uh, of the clean swimming world. Ross Tucker at Science of Sport on Twitter. If you do follow uh, this guy, he's, he knows the stuff with regards to physiology and uh, and uh, performance. Well, he, talk, he tweets a lot about uh, doping and so on, but he is talking about um, the swimming. And he says, the swimming world record thing really interests me. Take world records. Essentially, his argument here uh, in, in his timeline is, it's just very interesting that the sw- swimming world records continue to tumble and the track and field world records just don't. He says a world record on the track in 1980 is still 2 to 4% faster in the 1980s. It's 2.4% faster than anything produced today. World record in the pool, 4% slower. Um, now, he's not suggesting anything, anything incorrect is untoward is happening, but well, he is saying that it's very interesting that I this mean, is the case. I mean, one, one uh, reason for it, I guess, has to do with the fact that with swimming, there's a lot more there are a lot more technical adjustments adjustments than you that you can make compared to sprinting. And there's also recently it's become a lot easier to study um, exactly what you're doing in the pool and how effective it is to do to make slight variations. Um, but remember, there were all those records being smashed a few years ago. The suits with the suits, and then it was seen that these suits were actually unfair. That they, I, I can't remember the exact reasons, but it was seen that they were too good. Yeah, you, know, they just, you can't make suits that good. So it's funny that even compared to that era, there are still that you still see three and four records go in a single night in the pool. Oh yeah, but but I mean, I do think that some of it has to do with um, the fact that you can, you know, com- compared to sp- compared to running. I mean, people when when someone is running, it's it's quite you, you can see quite easily what they're doing. That's not really been the case with swimming for, you know, not not in the way that you have now. When you can, you can, everything can be analyzed uh, to such a, a much greater extent on video in slow motion. You can really understand what's happening with a stroke and study the effect of slight changes. I mean, I do think that there are a lot of there are a lot of ways in which improvements in technique could make you faster. I think that is the case. And then you've got the improvements in, improvements in conditioning, and then you've got the rampant doping. You've got the rampant doping, which is obviously uh, happening. So, some people are doing it. How can we... We can't say who. We don't know which uh, swimmers particularly are doing it. I mean, at the last Olympics, a lot of the uh, suspicion focused on um, Ye Xiuen, the Chinese swimmer, who uh, broke the world record in the 400 IM. 
she swam it again this time and just you know sank without trace she it was why, why are you here again why have you bothered turning up to this olympics because this is just ridiculous what what's happened to you i mean you've shredded your legacy you know to to, to turn up and uh it was kind of like um a reverse michelle smith type of trajectory you know what i mean uh, outstanding medal winning performances followed four years later by utter anonymity um her world record has since fallen. Remember that that uh, when she when she did that record, the, there was controversy because it was like she'd done the final split, the freestyle split of the IM race faster than Ryan Lochte had done in his in his equivalent of the race. Um, when he he won the men's event, and this sixteen year old Chinese girl had swum faster than Lochte, who's a big, powerful guy, um, which doesn't necessarily mean. You know that could that that's something that could happen on the outer limits of feasibility. You know, uh, uh, different swimmers approach the race in different ways. For for one swimmer, you know, diff different splits are sort of the key aspects of the place where they really kind of put the hammer down on their competitors. And for Lochte, that wouldn't really have been the freestyle, whereas for Yeshi Wen, it very much was. But you know, uh, there was people were saying, "Is this really plausible?" What we've just seen. I, I vaguely remember Ross Tucker writing about it at the time, saying, "Well, it's just about on the outer limits of what can be achieved. plausibility." Um, since then, her record has has been broken by our friend uh, Katinka Hosu and her and her husband. If you've seen him on the on poolside, ranting and raving, he's like a kind of Conor McGregor type uh, looking guy, uh, a sort of a, a muscle bound. Uh, extremely expressive and vocal man who dances around like a maniac on the side of the pool because they're you know he's her husband and coach they're they're a, they're a team a, a bit like Michelle uh, De Bruyne and Eric De Bruyne who he he was also her he was her husband and coach they're a tight unit um, broke Yeshi Wen's record uh, going for further goals um, magnificent performances the big Irish story so far has been the well in the ring anyway has been Paddy Barnes getting beaten in his opening fight. Because he spent too much time tweeting selfies with Ricky Fowler and Serena Williams, Ken? Um, n no, I don't think so. Uh, although I saw, I saw that Mick Conlon um, was angry yesterday uh, and was tweeting, this is a disgrace. It's a, I'm sure you've seen this, but you know, he, was, he was saying, this is a disgrace. The idea that people are, people are having a go at, uh, people are giving Paddy Barnes stick. Uh, the fact that some of you idiots on here giving Paddy Barnes stick is effing disgraceful what he's done for the country is unbelievable two times medalist three times Olympian and use keyboard warriors at home doing nothing with your lives but criticising him without a clue about boxing yeah um, and because people were going oh Paddy you know not a great performance uh, after all the uh, after all the hype in the in the build up um, and, and it's I can totally understand why, why people would do that you know I mean people are casual fans Paddy Barnes doesn't mean that much to them and I do think empathy is generally in short supply on the internet. When you see somebody who had been such a big figure in the build-up and had drawn so much attention to themselves falling flat on their face. But you'd swear you're talking about a guy who has never even competed for Ireland before. This is our one of our all-time great Olympians who's won two bronze medals. Hmm. So is he not due a little bit more respect? Yeah, oh, um, oh, he is absolutely, uh, and I would not, I would not um, be one of those people uh, tweeting Paddy Barnes, haha, Barnes, you are not so smart now. You got you, you have been knocked out, haha, lol. That would not, I would not do that because I have got a bit more respect for Paddy Barnes and what he has achieved. However, I can see that it is predictable 
that you know when when there's the performance is so disappointing um and there has been so much attention drawn in the build-up you know there was this whole thing going on with roy mcelroy i mean what did you think of the tweet for the two with caroline wasniaki to roy mcelroy how do you think you would have felt to be on the receiving end of that tweet well i know roy mcelroy tweeted both Mick Conlon and Paddy Barnes to wish them well, and he says they've enjoyed. He's been enjoying their tweets. Of course, but what option did he have? Well, just ignore them. Oh, he had. Well, no, come on. He had to either. He had to be a good sport. He had to go along with the with the banter, which he had no real choice. He, they kind of involved him in it in a public way. You know, the, loads of people, thousands of people, had been retweeting this and going, "Ha! Can you believe what Paddy Barnes has done now?" I mean, there was a whole there was a whole string of them, and obviously, he, you know, he thinks this is funny. Personally, I think most I, I think most of his tweets are funny. That's how I opened the show the other day. Yeah, maybe, maybe the was yeah, he won is a bit ridiculous. No, yeah, I, if I'd been uh, if I'd been Roy McElroy and, and I get that. Hey, uh, hey, at Carol Wozniacki, I think we make a great couple. What do you think, Rory McElroy? Yeah, and I don't know if I don't know how. Look, Rory McElroy's a happily married. Is he married? Not yet. I don't He's, think. Uh, in a long term happy relationship now, and Caroline Wozniacki looks very happy judging by that photograph. Yeah, so I wonder. All, did, all... I wonder did Paddy Barnes tell her that that was what he was planning to do with the. With the selfie. I don't know how happy she would have been. If I'd been Rory McIlroy, now maybe we've got a different temperament. Rory McIlroy's, you know, a, a world-class uh, golfer, nerves of steel, not much, probably ruffles the man. Uh, if I had been in that position and I got a similar type of uh, tweet, I would have been annoyed. Uh, I, I, I don't think I would have liked it. And, of course, you have to, you're kind of compelled to go along with it because... What choice do you have, really? You know, you could, you could, I suppose, as you said, ignore it, but everyone would notice that, and and it, and it would continue. You know, it would sort of, it would continue. People would be like, "Ah, oh, Rory McIlroy, you didn't like that, did you? You didn't like that." You know what I mean? I would have been a bit annoyed. I, I didn't think it was that well judged from Paddy Barnes. There seems to be whatever about judgment. There seems to be uh, an idea that this, in some, in some way, contributed to him getting beaten in the first round. When he was beating the first round, because well, for whatever reasons, largely because he was trying to make this weight, which m- was maybe the bigger mistake, was well, certainly the bigger mistake. I don't, I don't think it was a mistake to go around tweeting. Certainly in terms of his performance, he can tweet whatever selfies he wants. It's how he always approaches things. Yeah, he has a couple, of, a couple of bronze medals. Absolutely, you know that's 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 his uh, that's his way of doing things. You know, um, I don't think it probably had much. I'm sure. I'm sure that at this stage was what is Paddy Barnes 29 now. Mm. He he knows how to prepare he knows what he can do he knows what is he, he knows how what he needs to do to be in shape to fight the unfortunate thing with this fight is that it appears he says later that he wasn't really in shape or he he was in shape but rather the toll taken on his energy from getting in shape was so severe that but when he was in the ring he you know he had nothing left white kill me can't fight at 49 kilos anymore no energy at all today first time making the weight since 2014 fair play to spanish light i mean with the not knowing a great deal about uh, boxing, I'm, I'm immediately wondering why not move up a weight. Well, it might have been harder to qualify for a start. But I mean, listen, I know it's, speaking of staying in shape, I know it's not easy staying up late, watching all the events in Rio. You might not feel it. You're healthiest. There's not much sleep being had. Maybe you're not eating the best foods as you lie half asleep in your couch at one in the morning watching highlights of Edward Ling getting bronze for Great Britain in the men's trap shooting. But listen, we're here to help. Specifically, Dervil O'Rourke is here to help. She's in studio today to talk about her new book, The Fit Foodie, and to look ahead to the start of the track and field in Rio. I'm pretty sure we'll get stuck into some doping chat there too. Dervil's always been really interesting on that topic with us in the past. Of course, Dervil O'Rourke is one of Cork's legendary sports people, and she might have a couple of 2016 Olympians joining her with that status. Paul and Gary O'Donovan from Skibbereen powered to victory in their opening heat of the men's lightweight double skulls and then went full cork in their post-race interview. 
we were almost disappointed we couldn't race yesterday. We were looking forward <laughs> to that. Would have been a bit of crack, but uh, we had to settle with this. Uh, we handled it very well. So uh, yeah. yeah. Do you know we're, we're well used to a bit of wind. That kind of thing wouldn't phase us at all. Family and friends here. They're making plenty of noise for you. How oh. much does it mean to have you have them have <laughs> them here? Brilliant, and I'd say they're making plenty of noise at home as well. But you yeah. know, um, I heard them with 500 meters to go, and I could hear someone roaring at me from the grandstand. And that's a good bit. That's 250 meters I could hear them from. Yeah. Um, Most and then, of them are shouting up skib. Up skib, <laughs> not out of Ireland, but uh, you know, to have them all here and to have such smiling faces and everyone cheering for us after the race, you know, it's yeah. a huge honour first to be representing our country and to have a lot of people here screaming us on. It's brilliant. And um, big shout out to everyone gathered at home as well. There's a good few in the grandmother's place in Ballancolig and there's a few yeah. different places around Skibreen as well, kind of holding little gatherings. So a big shout out to all them as well. Paul and Gary O'Donovan, Ken, remember the names. I will. Sure you be seeing more of them over the next yeah. few days. Let's get over and to Rio. Voices. Let's get over to Rio to check in with Ewan McKenna, Sunday Business Post columnist. Ewan, how are you enjoying it so far? Um, it's interesting. It's 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 fairly hectic. Um, I suppose I remember a few years ago reading a line that kind of the Olympics are interesting because every time you turn a corner, it's the biggest moment in in, in someone's life, and, and it's certainly it's certainly like that. So. Uh, no, I mean it's, there's good and bad. Um, there's there's the flip side, of course. When you live here all the time, you kind of see what's going on within Brazil, and you're not in the bubble of of the Olympics as a lot of journalists are. So, I mean, there's there's that as well. There's the moral issue, but it's interesting. We, uh, myself and Ken here, have been disagreeing somewhat on the criticism surrounding Paddy Barnes' exit from the from the games yesterday. Uh, Ken feels, along with a lot of others, that. Yeah, maybe he shouldn't be tweeting so much. Maybe he shouldn't be quite so uh, quite so flippant in his uh, approach to the last few days ahead of the Olympics. What do you think? Well, you see, Paddy has always been like that. Um, and to kind of say in defeat, oh, this is an issue all of a sudden, Paddy, you shouldn't be doing that. When, while he was winning medals the last two Olympics, he was doing exactly the same thing. Um, well, it's more a case so even I mean, really of, of you, can't, you, you, know, you can't really complain. The criticism is predictable in the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you just run out of road. I mean, when you're when you're 29 and you're trying to make weight like that, um, I mean, it, it kind of makes jockeys look uh, more remarkable, like the Tony McGoy and stuff, because they do this late into their 30s and they keep making this weight. But I mean, Paddy's had issues for for two years now trying to get down to weight, and 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 you could see it. I mean, when he kind of he, he sat down at the end of the first round yesterday and he, he kind of just blew out and he looked absolutely exhausted. Um, and it was an interesting one because most people there are looking on, kind of, Paddy comes out and everyone's kind of sitting, lounging back in their chairs, presuming this will be business as usual. And then by the end of round one, everyone is sitting on the edge of those chairs thinking, Jesus, this, this, this could be trouble. This could be the end of the guy. And, and no one expected it for that reason. But but when you're when you're in your late 20s, I mean, I suppose look at it this way. Can, can, can you imagine being your weight when you were 20, when you're 30? Um it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to maintain. And I mean, Paddy has a reputation of being immensely cranky all the time uh, in training camps and whatnot. And again, that that's free. That's that's going up, going back years. And that's again going back to trying to make weight all the time, not eating properly because he's trying to make weight, not hydrating. Um, and it's finally got the better of him. But I mean, to, to go back to your initial point, I mean, the, the Twitter thing is just Paddy. I mean, okay, the the tweet kind of about the crisis in, in Irish boxing and, and, and kind of taking the piss out of Michael O'Reilly or whatnot. I mean, that for me was more of an issue where someone from the Irish Olympic Council needed to step in that night and tell lads not to do this and not to do that. Um, but I, I don't think it had anything to do with with, with his, his ultimate demise. But just on the, I mean, why, 
I mean, as you mentioned, you know, imagine being the same weight when you're 30, 20. Nobody is. Not many people, anyway. Um, why didn't he just move up? I mean, the next weight class flyweight is, is just three kilos more. I mean, if the weight cut was such a problem, why was he fighting at, at an unfeasibly low weight? Well, it, it goes back to when he started to qualify. I mean, you qualify at this weight has been selected for him three years ago. Um, and if you go back that long, um, you'd Michael Condon above him, you'd uh, John Joe Nevin above him. Um, so there was that issue. And, and, and secondly, if, if you want to go up those pounds, suddenly your power often becomes negated. And when he's dared step up uh, a few kilos, even, a, even just a handful of kilos in the past, he's found himself in against guys where his power is a big thing. I mean, he's, he's a big puncher. Um, but when he's gone up in the past, guys are able to take that. A bit, a bit like Conor McGregor, I suppose, for MMA fans the, the last time. Obviously, it, it's less of a jump, but it's the same idea. You and the, I don't know if you welcome the development that we've spotted over the last few days in various sports, but particularly swimming, whereby the, uh, what used to be kind of muttered under breaths and, uh, you know, the, 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 where it used to be a kind of, uh, an unsaid, and knowing kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, kind of except, vibe. Except for Janet Evans. Except for except for Janet Evans, who nudged, nudge, and winked, winked in a, quite a <laughs> in quite <laughs> an obvious, in quite a quite yeah, quite an obvious manner twenty years ago. Uh, well, now, now, especially in swimming, it's just uh, everyone seems to accuse everybody of everything, and uh, it's all fair game in the new climate. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I was I was reading a piece, uh, I think, in, in the Telegraph. I think Paul Hayward was writing about this yesterday. Um, it, it, it's strange, I mean, a, a lot of it, the, the one troubling aspect for me, a lot of it seems to be coming from American athletes. It's directed at Russian competitors, and that goes back to a, a more sensitive issue around these games, that Russia are bad, everyone else is good. But while Russia um, state-sponsored doping, a lot of these athletes from America and other countries who are giving out about them, uh, their countries enable doping by doing absolutely nothing to stop it, essentially, which is almost as bad. Um you go back, I suppose, to Alberto Salazar, Nike Oregon. Um, you look at what USADA have been doing the last three years, more than three years, in fact. You go in other sports, you go back to um, Floyd Landis going in, I think it was in 2010, um, when he went to USADA and he said, look, I have allegations here against Lance Armstrong, but it's much bigger than that. It has to be about the whole of cycling. All they were interested in was Lance Armstrong, um, and cycling is still as is. You go back last year to Steve Magnuson, the the, the whistleblower uh, about Nike Oregon, Salazar, Mo Farah, Galen Rupp, all these people. Uh, he went with allegations and proof as well, and USADA have done nothing. And not just America, I mean... Six months ago, um, WADA were rating doping testing programs and they gave Kenya and Ethiopia zero. Those two countries are here. Uh, in Spain, you have the blood bag still not opened. Spain are here. In Jamaica, WADA say they can't find guys to test. Jamaica are here. So a lot of this seems to be, in the swimming as well, it seems to be directed at Russia. And, and to a point, that's fine. Uh, but I think a lot of other people are afraid to look in the mirror you sound like Russia today now, Ewan. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a big George Galloway fan. <laughs> are these are these uh, clean American athletes not entitled to their righteous anger? It depends. I mean, I I, I don't know if they're clean, um, and and that's a big problem with these Olympic games. I mean, you watch everything and you wonder and you don't know, and it's. 
become a healthy cynicism rather than a negative cynicism because of the way it's been handled by the authorities. Uh, and, and for that, the, the, the IOC, what, uh, the IAAF, FINA, all these people have to take a, a big chunk of responsibility for that because we're wandering around looking at this athlete, that athlete, and going, well, there's an asterisk, there's an asterisk, there's an asterisk. But the way it's been handled has meant that it's almost a case of you need to prove yourself to be innocent and you're guilty otherwise. Is that, uh, Ewan, does that, in your opinion, have anything to do with the with all the empty seats that we're seeing? I mean, I, I don't know how bad this problem is. Maybe you can give us a better idea. You've been in some of these venues. Um, you know, certainly I was watching the swimming last night and the RTE commentary team were bemoaning the fact that there was a lot of uh, empty seats at the Aquatic Centre um, I think the number of tickets sold is something like four, four and a half million compared to 11 million uh, in London. Um, why are they having such trouble shifting these tickets? Is it a question of price or, or are people maybe not as taken in by the idea of the Olympic Games as uh, the IOC would like them to be? A little bit of both. I mean, I suppose maybe 20% is the idea that unless Brazil are playing, Brazilians don't really care. And that, that goes beyond the Olympics. I mean, if the European Championships are on, in, in a bar, uh, people won't watch them. Uh, but but a, but a bigger problem is is prices. I mean, I suppose the minimum the minimum wage in Brazil right now is about fifty euros a week. So if you're on minimum wage, you're not going to pay four days salary when you have a family to feed to go and watch a sport you've never heard of. Um, and, and I've noticed. I mean, again, just when when you live here, you kind of something catches your eye. And for, for me, this was the first um, this was the first Olympics in a country with. I suppose almost a predominant black population. Um, but when you're at all the events down here uh, and there are hundreds of people going from stadium to stadium because they're in hubs, so there might be 10 stadiums in, in a certain place, um, the only black people you see are working. Um, they're cleaning the toilets, they're working in the concession stands, they're, that's it. But everybody else is white. And, and that goes back to the price because there's this idea that Brazil is kind of racially integrated. It's not at all... Um, as a rule, almost, uh, wealthy people are white, poor, poor people are black. And thus, at, at, once you go to, go to the venues and you see all these white people, you realise that not only have black people been priced out of it, it's being held in areas where black people can't get to. Um, so, I mean, there is that reason. So you're excluding an awful lot of the population straight away. And then on top of that, Brazil is in a massive, massive... Uh, almost a depression coming from a recession that started in the World Cup. Unemployment is running at 11.5%. Uh, inflation is running at 10%. Um, schools aren't opening. And like I was talking to a volunteer the other day, and she's studying tourism in the Federal University in, 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 in Rio. Uh, and she's saying she hasn't had classes for five months because they ran out of money. Hospitals are being locked up. Um, so all of this is going on in the background, which puts sport into perspective. And as I said, I mean, you talk to journalists who've done a lot of Olympics and they say, oh, Olympics always exist in a bubble. That's fine. But I think this is one of the first Olympics where there are very definitely two sides to that bubble. And most of Brazil is on the outside looking in. OK, interesting stuff. Listen, Ewan, great stuff. Thanks a million. OK, thank you. You're just hearing all about the empty seats there from you, and It makes me wonder, who exactly was Kevin Mallon trying to sell the overpriced tickets to. Kevin Mallon is the guy at the centre of this um, major controversy around some tickets. A thousand tickets were believed to have been found 
uh, in his possession, or certainly Brazil, Brazilian police yesterday said they recovered more than 1,000 tickets, believed to have been destined for the OCI, which are being sold for more than face value. Kevin Mallon's named a guy who's picked up at a hotel near the Olympic Park in Rio, along with a translator last Friday. This is pretty, pretty tricky stuff for the OCI. Yeah. It's the Olympic Council of Ireland. So um, THG is the name of the company that uh, Kevin Mallon works for THG Sports, and that's actually part of the Marcus Evans group. Marcus Evans is the owner of Ipswich Town. Um, Stephen Hickey, the son of Pat Hickey, um, who is Ireland's Olympic boss, uh, worked for uh, THG uh, for a while. Certainly he was uh, working for them uh, around the time of the last Olympics, so he doesn't work for them anymore. Um, THG... Uh, also certainly used to be involved in the hospitality at the Aviva Stadium for the soccer matches. You know, they're like a big uh, sort of sports hospitality kind of corporate entertainment type of uh, company. Now, uh, so apparently uh, Kevin Mallon was trying to sell these tickets in Rio and there's a whole bunch of them uh, which are supposed to be going to, supposedly allocated to the uh, Olympic Council of Ireland, which were being uh, which were being bandied around Rio by this guy. Now I don't know how much luck he was having selling them for uh, inflated prices, given that uh, there seemed to be a lot of empty seats at a lot of these events. THG was the company who w- was the authorized ticket seller for the 2012 Olympics yes. f- on behalf of the OCI, but not this time. Not not this time. Uh, they did have uh, a link up yeah. with them at the time of the last Olympics, but apparently. That no longer exists. Although there, there, I mean, there have been, you know, people have have commented on this relationship before. Yeah, Romario. Yeah, Romario, as in former Brazilian legendary footballer Romario, and uh, Brazilian uh, politician um, who uh, spends a lot of time criticizing uh, sports governing bodies, uh, particularly FIFA, but also uh, the IOC. And in one case in 2014, uh, Pat Hickey by name. Uh, saying it was reported in England, Mr. Hickey granted the allocation of tickets for Ireland's Olympic Games in London to a private company that in turn created ticket packages with lodging gear towards wealthier clientele. Uh, he was, Romario had an issue with this because in his opinion this was one of the big problems that was going to happen at the World Cup uh, the, in 2014 and the Rio Games uh, whereby the tickets were being sold to extremely wealthy people, you know, by sort of prof- there was profiteering going on in tickets, uh, which was closing most people out of it and enriching a select few uh, with access to those tickets. So this is an interesting story um, in terms of how exactly did these tickets destined for the OCI come into the possession of this man, Kevin Mallon? Uh, I think there are some questions to be asked. I mean, there's been a lot of, there are a lot of questions for the OCI, really, here. Uh, I mean, we've had this whole thing dragging on with, with uh, Michael O'Reilly. Yeah, and I don't think that's been handled well. No, I mean, I, I don't understand what how it can have dragged on for so long without any clear information coming out. Uh, I think it's very unusual. Uh, I don't really, I don't understand. And now this, this is this is very bad PR, and, uh, and I'm interested to see what explanation... Uh, the organisation uh, comes up with for for how these how this block of tickets got it gone into the wrong place. Well, so far they 
don't, haven't offered an explanation for that. What they say is that they had no knowledge of the two people arrested and had begun an investigation with its current ticket seller, ticket reseller, into how these individuals were allegedly in possession of the OCI allocated tickets. And they say the OCI strictly adheres to the IOC regulations around ticket allocation, sale and resale. We are treating this matter with the utmost seriousness. So we'll see what happens with that. Joined in studio now, delighted to say, by former world and European champion, friend of the show and author of her second book, The Fit Foodie, Dervil O'Rourke. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Well, I'm good. I have to tell you that I had the book in my hand this morning. Uh, unfortunately, it was literally yanked from my grasp by Ken here, who's already started leafing through the recipes. So you already have a, a big fan. Ken is my number one fan. He is your number one yeah. fan, yeah. I like reading cookbooks. Do you do like reading them? I do. Yeah, I so love do it, I. But although it really kind of, it's it's kind of weird as well, you know, because you start literally salivating. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you know, don't the, make anything. <laughs> well, no, I, I think I might uh, make one of these tagines, actually. Give us a look. Oh, What's, so what have you, I see you've got a couple of notes there. What's the most delicious looking oh. dish? Oh, well, I have notes, but I didn't, I didn't write down. Any dishes? I was just writing down. Well, actually, the one thing I wrote down was nut roast. I was like... What is this? So 80s. I've never seen it this. Back. Do you not remember in the 80s if anybody had like a vegetarian coming to their house, the only thing that people <laughs> used to feed them was nut roast. Yeah. Do you not remember this? It was yeah. like the only thing Irish mammies could cook that wasn't like roast chicken on a Sunday. Yeah. Really? It's very retro nut roast. Yeah, it's I like never, a volibond. Uh, I've never come across it. It looked uh, really It's nice. lovely. It's really nice. And it's a really simple way to do it. And actually, it took me a long time to get the recipe right. So I was really, ins- it came in almost at the very end of the edit. So I was really <laughs> insistent it went in. I was like, this nut roast is so retro and it's taken so long to get correct that it really deserves to be in here. It's really good. I like the sound of the turkey and tomato meatballs. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> Although you sound, you sound as though you don't really like turkey that much, I have to say. You keep you keep it, making these, it lean. yeah you keep making <laughs> these grudging points about turkey You're like well turkey's lean and it's economical yeah you know, I suppose we should all you know make I, our peace with turkey I just don't love it the way I love chicken no. but I still think like you can still eat it all the time I just it it just doesn't do it for me the way chicken would like we can have favorites it's okay not all meats are created equal so yeah. the foods in here there are a lot of pictures of you with chickens and then, living chickens yeah. and then there's a lot of pictures afterwards of chicken dishes so but it does none of look the like intermediate stage. I went on a rampage what is a healthy food though Derville? because I just ate a banana for example that's uh, good yeah but then you're told from time to time no nah, banana's not great a lot of sugar uh, Simon informed me today that while yeah. some apples are okay apparently pink lady apples aren't because they're too sweet and they're, they've got a lot of sugar is it I sugar? I heard that recently yeah. that is so weird that there's some campaign up. against the pink apple uh, pink ladies pink lady apple. Um, I heard that the best apples are the farmer's market ones that are grown in Ireland. Mm. I Honestly, I think you need to keep it simple. Like, I'm not a registered dietitian. I actually had a registered dietitian work on this book and she's done a brilliant layer on top of it that's very accessible. But my whole thing is like, is it simple, relatively mm. simple, and where are you sourcing? Like, even basic stuff, like when you're buying fruit and veg, just look at where it's come from. You know, if it's come from halfway around the world, that's probably not ideal. Try and just buy something in season and <laughs> just be a little bit savvy about it. Were you always aware of this, right from the start of your career, was nutrition? No. no, not at the start. Not until after the 2004 Olympics when I did really badly and I had had an appendicitis and food poisoning. And then I was like, oh, maybe you can't just train and do whatever you want. Maybe you need to do other things. So funnily, like, I, I don't know if I told the story loads, but I emailed Sonia Sullivan after the 2004 Olympics. And I said to her, oh, hi, like, we're on the same team. I don't even know if she's staying in the village. Like, we'd never really, I was just like a fan of hers. 
And I was like, oh, you know, I ran at the Olympics too and I did really badly and I want to run better and I train, but what else should I be doing? And one of actually the main things she said to me was diet. She's like, oh, you need to look at your diet and you need to be really good with that. And she gave me the name of a really good nutritionist. And I went, got an appointment a month later and then radically changed things. So that's quite interesting. I must actually say that to her because yeah. it was, she, I remember she sent me this really long, detailed email back. And I remember really appreciating it because I thought she was such a rock star. I thought she'd just say, thank you, Fan. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, yeah, it's yeah. interesting because the amount of advice <laughs> that she could give you and I don't know what else she put on that email, whether there was stuff about Loads. Yeah, psychological approach. But it's interesting that nutrition was so high up on it. I think it was like the first thing outside of training. She was just like, you have to be in lifestyle. You have to be looking at what you're eating for in terms of recovery and just putting good quality sessions together and not getting sick. Because that was my big thing that I was saying to her. Like I'd gotten so sick that I felt that my system wasn't very healthy. So... Yeah, it was it was really interesting. Um, and she's actually really into food. She's still really into food. Like when we, we were working together in the Europeans recently and um, I had like made snacks, but she kept going to cool places and buying really funky, like artisan, nice quality snacks. So we were like competing with each other, funnily well, enough. Yeah, well, there seems to be a lot of that. Uh, if, you, if people follow any of the athletes on Twitter, it yeah. seems like all you guys are uh, almost obsessed with healthy yeah. eating. It's I, like I, Joe Flannery is constantly tweeting food. Jerry Flannery as well, does he? Food, oh, yeah, yeah he's, he's, a, he's really a food maniac. Food, yeah. Carl um, Pendra, that MMA guy, I think he's kind of concentrating on food now that he's retired. You know, it's like uh, it seems as though athletes are almost driving or like a big part of kind of fascination with food. Yeah, I think there's. it's funny. Like when I wrote the first book, I remember I pitched it in 2012 and the space was very quiet. But like... I pitched it after I went to cookery school and I felt that there was just something there and that like not just performance food, but food that was genuinely nice that like if you invited your friends around for dinner that they wouldn't feel like they'd been hard done by and that they were on some kind of like Olympic diet. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I really felt there was something in that and I, I wrote the book and it came out to, in 2014. And then kind of after that, more more people started publishing that type of thing. So it is interesting that like it's definitely grown since then and even in the UK it's bigger it's probably bigger everywhere there's been a real trend toward that health and wellness but I think it's a it's a funny space because I think the way I do it I'm very I'm all about balance like especially in the new book I'm very much because now I'm just like the people that we used to say were weekend warriors you know mm. like I'm one of those now because I'm not a professional athlete like I'm just trying to stay fit yeah this isn't aimed at Olympians no only. it'll be a narrow, narrow enough market if that yeah, was the case yeah about eight people um, <laughs> and they'd probably just want free ones but um, no it's way more for people who like are just trying to stay a little bit fit and healthy and who are busy because I'm incredibly busy and like even retiring that was a big lesson to me I used to, you know the way we all complain a bit about training and then you retire and you realise nobody actually wants to pay you to go and train <laughs> that you actually have to work and do real jobs so for me finding ways around that to keep fit and healthy was important so I was like one of the big things I'm always on about is 20 minutes whether it's like 20 minutes of just going and moving and doing a little bit of a workout or just 20 minutes of making some food mm. could make a massive difference too. Did, did you go through a period after retiring of picking out a little bit? Honestly, probably only about two weeks. Really? Yeah, I remember like I drank quite a bit of Prosecco because <laughs> I was toasting myself a lot <laughs> with my friends because I hadn't done that a lot. I was like, oh, wasn't that just great? Just taking that, a me yeah. one medal out, then another yeah. one out. And, uh, yeah. Remember that race in 09 <laughs> and all this kind of, you know, yeah. I was really, um, yeah, I had about two weeks where I was definitely having the crack, but I knew I was only having the crack and that it wouldn't last because I, do, I actually don't feel very good when I eat loads of crap food and I like, I kind of like feeling fit and healthy. Like, you know, like I had a baby last year and like even towards the end of that, like I, I worked out 
quite far up towards the end of the pregnancy and even then I took a few weeks off afterwards to recover and I hated that like I was dying there was one of the hardest parts I found of being pregnant was not being able to actually like do Olympic weightlifting it really annoyed <laughs> me so I like I actually really like feeling kind of strong well what about the people who it's called the fit foodie what about the yeah. people who are they like the sound of the foodie part yeah. It's just maybe the fit bit that, that puts them off. Even though the Olympics are on at the moment, there are a lot of people staying up too late probably watching Olympic Games, maybe not getting the exercise in, but they feel that they can get away with it all by eating some healthy dishes. Does that work? I think you can get away with a huge amount, but I think it's even lifestyle. Like even if you're not, I don't think you need to be on a structured workout plan. I'm I'm not at the moment. So I try and go like, like I'm staying up in Dublin tonight now. So I'll try and like go out for a walk for 20 minutes. Um, maybe I might do a little bit of a jog in the middle of it. I'll see how my mood is, how tired I am and stuff. So I think, I think, I actually do think if you're kind of watching your intake of food in terms of trying to be relatively good with your quality of ingredients and how regularly you're eating and stuff. I think that goes a massively long way. I think the fitness is kind of on top of it. I would say it's two thirds food. I liked a note from the nutritionist, which was just don't feel guilty. Yeah. Like if you eat it, then just move on. Yeah, she's brilliant. You know, she's the Olympic nutrition. She's out in Rio with them at the moment. Sharon Madigan and when I asked her to do the book she's so sensible and I think that's what people people assume like that in this world of like Olympic eating that the people who I suppose if Sharon let's say she makes the rules that they wouldn't be sensible at all but she's not she's just like it's really not the end of the world if you have a bit of cake which it isn't as long as uh, as long as it's as many different colors as possible yeah she's very into color but even stuff like that like I said like just do like people don't really want to know the science they want to know the practical stuff and her thing is like get loads of color on your plate and then you'll have loads of vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and everything will be great I say Rio must be tricky for the athletes in some ways but I was listening to Darren Campbell on the BBC's podcast when they were Radio 5 Live and they were doing a preview and he was saying look the issue with the track and field athletes is we don't get going until the second week yeah. we're in the Olympic Village well oftentimes it's sort of holding areas before but the, generally most of them are in there for certainly from a few days in advance the competitors such as the rowers he name checked finish very early yeah. they come into the athletes village to get pissed and eat McDonald's and we have to watch them do this and so like Darren Campbell's talking about these stories where he's getting up at 6am to go and compete in an Olympic final and the, the rowers are just arriving in from their night out and heading off to McDonald's and stuff it's kind of a strange one that all the temptations that you're staying away from for the entire year are kind of in front of you there yeah, I think people have such a funny perception of the Olympic Village. Like, it's the biggest party zone you're ever going to hit, because especially with athletics, because we're on the second week. And even Rob Heffernan, like, I think he's on quite towards the end of it. So, like, I was on the phone to him yesterday, and he was in his house in Cork. And I could hear the two kids in the background, and, like, everyone thinks he's in Rio. Like, he's absolutely <laughs> Just not. Just staying away from it until as, as late yeah, as possible. Yeah, staying much, away, yeah. and he'll, like, he's not, I don't think he's flying for another week. And that's just smart. In my, like, that's how I would do it if I was doing it. For London, I flew in. I think I competed on the Saturday and I flew in Thursday night late. So I was there for one day. I literally only had time to figure out the bus route and to know where the dining hall was. Like very little time. That's Yeah, it doesn't sound like there's any great benefit to being there besides enjoying the experience. But I suppose if you're still, if you haven't competed yet, you're probably too in the zone to really be taking it in. Yeah, I think as well it depends on your sport. I know certainly with athletics, we're very like, like... Certain athletes, I know certainly I was and I know Rob would be, we kind of do our own thing and like we wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone a lot of holding camps, I just didn't enjoy them. I, it just wasn't my thing to be around loads of people before big competitions, I preferred to be in my own environment. So 
other people like to do that. They like to embrace that. They like that kind of team environment, but it's just not the way I was wired. Mm. So, you know, and I see them, they're out in, I think, Uberlandia, which I think doesn't sound like a real place. <laughs> Seemingly it is real. Um, and I d that, would, that, that wouldn't do it for me, but like some athletes will end up coming out there and running really well and some won't. It just, I think you have to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. You know, I was talking to my husband about this last night and I was saying, I'm like one of those horses that used to travel really badly because all my personal bests were in Europe. <laughs> like I was like, Asia just took me down. I just couldn't handle all that time away. I just, I much prefer things being close to home. Who are you excited about seeing track and field wise from an Irish point of view? You, you mentioned Rob Herford. What, was, Rob, yeah. Is he 38 years of age now? I don't want to give him a... I was trying, uh, yeah, I was but, trying to figure, is he yeah. 37 or 38? I'll, um, I'll double check it. But by race walking standards, that's not a, an issue really, is it? It's not young, but it's not too old. Mm. You know, it's um, it's. I would assume it's his last Olympics. I I wonder is it his last championship? Full stop. I think he could pull off a medal, but I think it's obviously a very big ask. Um, he had an unbelievably good performance last year at World Championships that went under the radar. He was fifth, and he had had two groin surgeries that most people didn't even realise that he had. One of them was in May, so I actually thought he'd come about twenty fifth at Worlds last year. I, I remember staying up to watch it because where was it on Beijing so it was mm. on during the night and I stayed up I was at a wedding and I stayed up to watch it I think I was possibly the only person at the wedding staying up to watch the men's 50k race walk <laughs> and uh, it was it was phenomenal and I actually remember thinking if he can hold on to this form at all and do that in Rio he's got a very good chance outside of that I think Kira McGean if she can negotiate her way through the semi-final into the women's 1500 meter final She'll give it a good lash. Very hard, though. It's a very deep event. A lot of very good girls, good Americans. But getting out of the semi into a final would be astonishing. And then I think my dark horse is Fanula McCormack. I oh, think yeah. I think she's like, um, I keep calling her small but mighty. She's just, I think she's ready to go. Like, I texted her after Europeans because I know she was a bit annoyed. And she was quite vocal about why she was annoyed at the time with the Kenyan in her race and it was so funny her text back like was she was just so annoyed that she didn't win a medal uh, but it was I just thought it was really mm -hmm. impressive you know she just was so irritated at not winning and it wasn't it was she just was like I'm better than that you know like I can win I don't want to go there and not win medals and I think that kind of attitude is what you need coming into an Olympic Games and she's been so under the radar like I haven't heard anybody talk about her no, it's funny for somebody who has achieved at a, a high event. level. Yeah, Thomas Barr, Mark English, those kind of guys. They're again, very injured. Yeah, um, very hard to do a good Olympic heat semi and final Without over four hundred hurdles and eight hundred with yeah. If you've been quite injured, really? I think Mark English looks to be closer to pulling it off than Thomas. He ran well in London in the Diamond League the anniversary games. He wasn't too far off his PB, but I'd worry about going through the rounds how his legs will stand up to that. He missed a lot of time. Mm. Um, and Thomas, then I was hoping at Europeans that he'd go sub 50, substantially sub 50 in the semi. And I was surprised when he didn't. So I think it's going to be tough for him. I think all you can hope for them is they do enough that they're happy. I just, I just think, I just don't they're in the same shape as last year because of injuries. And that's luck. It's Olympic year. It only comes once every four years. That's just bad luck. We've managed to go almost a whole conversation there without mentioning doping. I know, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, the doping question yes. is, well, I don't know, it's the, the Kenyan story is the latest one under sort of Sunday Times uh, of the weekend. So their track and field manager has been sent home. Obviously the Russians aren't going to be in, in track and field, albeit they'll be in most other sports at this stage. Um, is it tainting it for you or is it going to take away your enjoyment? I suppose I'm asking you something in advance, but has, has it, even in the build-up, has it taken any of your enthusiasm away? 
not really, because I think I was never naive, you know, about sport and the drugs and everything. I think I was probably naive about the levels of corruption. Um, mm. You in mean our, kind of at the administrative yes, level? Yes, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I don't think... I think I probably felt that they should be... were doing more to take care of clean athletes, I think, than they've been doing. Mm. Um, so for me, that, that taints this whole sort of... Oh look, Olympism and you know, isn't isn't it holier than thou? And aren't we great here with their ideals? I just kind of think, well, what do they really stand for? You know, but I think in terms of the, the amount of people taking drugs and uncovering that, that's no major surprise. I mean, like when I was in the circuit, if you're talking to people and they're being tested far less than you are, or you know, I remember even lead, leading into London, when we were being blood tested all the time, and very few other nations are being blood tested. Like none of the Jamaicans are blood tested, and we were all very aware of that. So for me, it's nothing new in terms of that side of it. But I guess in terms of when the stories come out constantly, like he said, she said with IOC and with WADA, you start going like, who are the good guys here? Like who who is the gatekeeper like of sport? Mm. That's And that would worry me. Uh, even with the, you know, the the Diak gone and Seb Co taking over and all this kind of stuff, there's no, you haven't seen any more leadership in the last few months? Um, I, I'm... I'm torn on the co on the co situation. I feel how how did he not see more and do more and you know then the eternal optimist in you would say, well, he did see it, but he had to get into a position of power to make any change. <laughs> but then the that's very optimistic, isn't it? Yeah, that's always a good justification. Yeah, and I just I had to change the system from the inside. Yeah, and I just for me it doesn't um, it doesn't sit too well and. Uh, I think even with this Russian situation, yeah, they should probably be banned. But like, it's naive to think, you know, Russia is the doping starts and ends in <laughs> Russia. I mean, that's idiotic. What do you think that we were talking the other day about this um, apparent trend of uh, athletes kind of just directly pointing the finger at their competitors and saying, you're a cheat. Mm. Like it, it's happened a load in the swimming. Um, Lily King, American swimmer to Yulia Efimova. Uh, a Russian basically calling her a cheat to her face. Mac Horton, the Australian, called Sun Yang Chinese yeah. a diplomatic to his between face. the countries. Yeah, yeah. So wasn't Sun Yang a splasher though? Is that worse? Didn't he splash him? Uh, he may in have qualifying rounds. He, I, I don't know. Take I don't the know. drugs and the splashing. <laughs> he did. He did definitely take some drugs at some point. Mm. Although he says he explained it all. It was to do with asthma or something. Explained it all. Um, heart, heart palpitations. It, it's not something I can remember happening too much though. In terms of like while it's like during the actual event itself. It's not like years later. It's not like oh you know I was racing against a cheat. It's like literally yeah, on the used, day. It used to be that people would silently think things and maybe athletes would talk amongst themselves. Grumble a little now, bit. People, people feel more free to just say it. Yeah, what do, you, what do you make of this sort of development? I think that there's definitely a turning point with clean athletes where they've had enough. I think it's probably what has come across as the corruption has been the breaking point, almost worse than the drugs, because I think they've... I, just me personally, I've just felt like you can't really sit back and wait for the system to, system defend, to defend it because I don't know are they ever going to and you know I wonder is that part of it to be honest um, I, I think I strongly believe and I, I do, it's probably an impossible thing I think there needs to be a union whether it's within athletics or Olympic sport athletes where it's look, you're looking at the welfare because you know 
even stuff like if you look at it, how much money the Olympics brings in, and I was reading a study there recently that, that US athletes that are ranked in the top 10 in the world in track and field make an average of like $15,000 a year and stuff. And then you look at all the money that comes into different events. And like, I don't know, I just I just think, who is the athlete's voice essentially, right? There's an IAAF athlete commis- commission, but that's put into place by the IAAF. Um, you know, they pick them. So who, who represents independently the athlete voice? I'm not yeah. sure who it is. The athletes are basically slave labor in the Olympics for the yeah. IOC to make money. And a lot of people don't realize that. And they think that, um, oh, you know, you're going to the Olympics. That's great. But I remember after Athens, I came home and within about two weeks, I was working a telesales job, getting ready for the 2005 season, you know. Yeah, so yeah. and that's like that's not really the Olympic dream. All right. Daryl, oh, we're going to see on TV. You'll be on RT. Yes, I will be. But as I was saying, it's really late at night, so hopefully somebody outside of my dad will be watching. People people will be watching, I'm sure okay, people, people will get involved. Listen, the book is called The Fit Foodie, and yes. uh, we're, we're, li- we're literally going to go straight back to the office and see if we can rustle some stuff up from that. We'll hit, the, we'll hit the canteen hard and see what we can do in there. Sounds good. Derville, <laughs> thanks so, uh, so much. Great to see you. Thank you. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Ron. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. All right, that's your Olympics hit for this Tuesday. Day, ah, whatever day we're on at the Olympics. I don't know. It's just, they just melt into each other. Day Friday, Saturday one, Sunday. This could take a while again. Sunday two, Monday three. So today is Tuesday. Today's day four. But we were really looking back at day three because we recorded this early afternoon. So uh-huh. uh, hopefully day four will be special for everybody. The women's sevens is done and dusted. Really good final last night. Well, really good performance by Australia. New Zealand got, uh, were... Uh, looked a little stunned actually by how brilliant Australia were but I think everybody seemed delighted that that sport and the women's version of that sport was showcased uh, really well the, sec- the difference in standard between those two teams and even the bronze medal match between Canada and Great Britain was astonishing really maybe not that surprising that uh, New Zealand and Australia are ahead of the pack in women's rugby sevens as tends to be the case sometimes in in the uh, in the men's sport as well at, uh, at the 15s level but yeah great Great stuff by Australia. Uh, that's pretty much it from us, I think, Ken. Yeah, probably probably enough from us We've for We've been talking day. a lot of Olympics for today. And now we have to go and watch some Olympics, so we better go. All right, uh, you can listen to yesterday's podcasts if you feel like it. We were talking about Derry City and the FAI. We're also talking about the Gaelic football and hurling quarterfinals and semifinals at the weekend. So there's plenty of great stuff in there. We'll talk to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.